right, so today we're going to get into some stuff that I'll be honest, we'll see if David Dinger has to edit this. We're going to uh, Freud today, Sigmund Freud. And this is where this gets a little, uh, I try to be as blunt, but also as uh, non-worldly as I can in my language, because Freud really kind of gives us our modern world in many ways in terms of the sexualization of the self. And so this is kind of a tricky one to try to teach, um, but I'll let Truman do it because I think he does an excellent job describing this. But a lot of the world we live in comes from, not psychologically, most uh, psychologists don't do Freud anymore, but culturally, the sexualization of everything and that the primary mode of human happiness comes from sexual pleasure and expression, that's from Freud. And so we're going to really look at that. And then what's going to happen is people are going to take his ideas and politicize them. And so it becomes a political weapon. For, for him, it's just psychoanalysis. It's this kind of naturalistic way of trying to explain humanity in the course of history. For people after him, it becomes a tool of political action and revolution. And so that's that shift. And that's the world we live in. It starts with Freud. All these other things are foundational we've done in terms of inner expression and in terms of, you know, the imminent frame. You know, those are all things that are going to keep in the background. But Freud is going to be the one that shows you that shift towards the sexual and then in particular, the weaponization of it by what sometimes is called the new left um, and that sort of thing. So as we kind of go through this, I should give you my slides here. Let's see if it'll advance for me. It might take a second because my Promethean is uh, um, lagging for me here. But again, on our modern self here, I want to show you something that was going on Twitter recently. This is from Kraft Peanut Butter of all things. Okay, so Kraft Peanut Butter, why in the world this has to be politically active or you know socially active, I, I don't know. But this was just this week. And you can kind of see this even just by their logo that they're trying to advocate a specific position uh, as far as things go. But in particular, right now, they're putting out a storybook for kids. It's a storybook for kids to help parents be together, better together. And it looks very innocuous. And it says, him, hers, them, and theirs, learning pronouns with the bears. So pretty interesting. This came out this week. This is new. And they're really, really kind of advocating for this. And so I have, they have a little kind of cute video on this. I'm going to show you this if this, if my Promethean doesn't lag too much. Um, I've got a lot of tabs open, so sometimes it slows down when I'm sharing my screen with, uh, with everything. But if I can get this to work properly, here it is. So this is on their actual page right now, and it looks very cute. Crunchy and Smoothie want to learn pronouns with you. See this? And so there's a kind of a targeting of kids with this. Here you go. You can kind of see how it's advertised here. I just wanted to let it load. So they wrote a book with their friend, Nick North, his, him, and theirs. Because we stick together to make feel included, we build a better world, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's intentionally cute. It's on loop here. You can kind of see this right now. And so obviously, how do we, the point is, how do we get here? And then how do we respond? We were talking to Gina here earlier. Once we figure out how we got here, how do we respond to all this? Because obviously, this is not about adults. This isn't about like lobbying your congressman. This is intentionally made for kids and two kids, right? So this is something, this is on Kraft Peanut Butter. So if you haven't seen this yet, this is something that's very recent, um, explaining that. Now, there's another one that I'll show you probably next week because the video is not working properly um, for me, but let me go back to this. But there's a, um, a video of a, a gender therapist, and she basically says that when a boy, for example, tries to take off his onesie but leaves it on, that's him trying to make a dress and trying to express that he's really not a boy. Um, and that a girl that takes her, her barrettes out of her hair, she's showing that she doesn't want to be girly. She's really trying to show that she's transgender. Um, like this is a therapist talking about, and then we're talking about people as young as like 18 months. That they're, that, so, I mean, uh, the sexualization and genderization sort of stuff involving children goes back to Freud. 
the idea that the entire amount of your human existence from birth is inherently, or even in the womb, is inherently sexual, is something that goes all the way back to Freud. And so this, that, that sets up our, our, the world in which we live. Okay, and so this video, it'll it just, it'll say it can't play it. Just give me a second. Here we go. This is the other thing I want to show you also on how this kind of works its way out. Um, this was at Chapman University. These are graduation ceremonies. So now, again, if these are identities and sex and gender and those things are not who you are, not just incidental things, but your very nature, you now have to have separate graduation. <laughs> so this is at Chapman University. There's a general commencement, but now we have not only a black graduation, but APIDA, we have lavender, we have disability, we have Middle Eastern, we have Latinx. We can't say Latina and Latino because that excludes uh, people of that heritage who are transgender or don't necessarily identify with male or female. So now it's Latinx. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but that's the new thing because Latino, Latina assumes gender binary, right? Male or female, Latino, Latina. So now it's Latinx. You'll, this is a very frequent term you're going to see everywhere now, just so you know, this is all over the news. So if you ever see that, that's, what, that's why they changed that term. It's not Latina, Latino, it's Latinx because then we don't want to exclude people who are quote unquote non-binary. So this is showing up everywhere. Again, you saw it on the craft peanut butter. Now you're seeing it in graduation ceremonies. This was just from this past summer, by the way. Go for it. Uh, I can't remember the exact acronym, but it has to do with the non-conforming, non, -conforming, non I, it's, yeah. Lavender is the obvious uh, lesbian gay one, uh, but the other one is like a non-conforming, it's like a, like a whole group of people, intersex, disability, there's like a whole, it's another acronym. I lose track of my acronyms. Go ahead, Warren. What if you're a black, disabled, gay person? Go to all three. <laughs> go to all three or go to whichever one you find to be your primary identity. Go for it. Well, when I was teaching uh, or learning a little bit of Spanish and French, I realized that a lot of the nouns are either masculine or feminine. Mm -hmm. So what do you do with that now? There's actually, if you talk to, and I don't want to put her on the spot, I won't say her name because we're on here, but if you talk to Sandra, if you know who I mean, yes. Sandra, who's German, she'll tell you that that's a huge debate right now in Germany. It's how do we, how do we like be inclusive with our, and, and non-gender uh, exclusive with our nouns and pronouns and stuff like that. That's a thing over in Germany too. So this is not just exclusive to the United States, because you're right, in Spanish and in French and in German. Now, German also, what they've done, there's a couple things they've done. Number one, there's, in German, there's also a neuter. Yeah. Right? There's der and d for male and female, but then there's also das, which is neuter. They're trying to use that more and more often, so it seems neutral. So, I mean, so it's, it's, it's not just impacting the United States. This is kind of a thing all over the place. And they're, you know, in their, uh, the Bundestag, their, their like, parliament, they're they're experimenting with ways to be inclusive in the way they do all of their introductions in parliament and everything if you look it up online there's a spoof where a guy does like two two minutes and he's making he's making fun of it and i don't even know what party he is and again it's not political but for like two minutes he gives every single possible arrangement in german of all the different people that could possibly be present for his introduction and so then the speaker says are you done with your time yet and he says no i'm not done with my introduction yet <laughs> and he's like He's, and, he, and he goes through every single possible combination of genders and identities and stuff. And he just keeps reading. I want to be inclusive here. So he reads for like two minutes all the different possibilities to kind of show the absurdity that this is leading to, right? Where you can't, in order to include everybody, you can't even say anything. You know, you, you, he's not even done with this introduction. So it's not like it's people are just walking in lockstep, right? I mean, in, in these in different places in Europe. Um, but the establishment, what you would call kind of like that socio-political economic establishment certainly has bought in, which is why you see things like Kraft Peanut Butter, or in this case, Chapman University, with these sort of things. Yes, go ahead. I'm just finding it interesting that they're holding in a fish interfaith. Mm -hmm. I almost highlighted that. I was wondering if somebody's going to catch that. Held at the Fifth Faith Fish Interfaith Center. 
Isn't that interesting? So where are the atheists? They're invaded. Um, in fact, Harvard University has an atheist chaplain. Okay. I'm not joking. That was just in the last year. And uh, Robert Baer, a Roman Catholic bishop, if you want to look something up, I don't have time to do it here. For those of you who take notes, look up Roman Catholic, look at uh, Bishop Barron or Roman Catholic Bishop Barron, and then look up Harvard chaplain. He has a whole thing on this. It's actually really funny because he, he kind of like, he's not trying to pick on atheists. He's like, do you understand what you, what you just said? You know what I mean? It's kind of like an oxymoron or a, a contradiction in terms, but he has a whole little thing about where, why people, why this is even a thing. So look up Roman Catholic. You're absolutely correct though, that it's interfaith. And so atheists are also included in the interfaith because we don't want to be exclusive. We want to be inclusive, right? Yeah, go for it. So it looks like, it looks like the more inclusive we try to be, the more segregationist yes. we become. Yes. Exclusive. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to ask what you're showing all of these. Do they have a graduation for people who are not? Yes, there's a general convocation. So if you look up here, it says <laughs> cultural. So it says uh, cultural graduation celebrations are additions to the university-wide commencement ceremony. Students are free to register for these additional celebrations to share the joy of graduation with their friends and family if they choose to. So you're not required okay. to go to these. Okay. So you, there is a, this, but there was nothing else. Yeah, no, there is a general commencement <laughs> still, but these are all like additional things. I mean, I can show you a lot of stuff where we've now segregated, they're starting to resegregate student housing, yeah. right? And stuff like that. It's not integration now. It's we want to create safe spaces, right? Safe spaces, especially at the university. Segregation. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, just in a different way. It's use it's right. to create, yeah, kind of like you're saying, it's ironic because in order to try to be inclusive, you're inherently being exclusive. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's odd. And so there's really no way to win in that case. Go ahead. So if you're, if you're trying to do this in German, then now you have, what, die, 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 das, dumb? Yeah, and actually inventing, that's actually true. Inventing new articles, that is one of the things that they're also trying to do. Oh. Inventing new articles that are inclusive articles. You see what I'm saying? So pronouns, it's the same thing with pronouns. There's feminine, right? So like if it's, if it's male, you say dying. If it's female, it's dina, right? They're trying to invent new ways of saying that's yours, basically. That's not gender specific. So it impacts all the other languages, Spanish, French. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. From the South, you got to cover y'all. Yeah, basically. <laughs> right. So, He doesn't have to speak English, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I only show you this to show you again. I keep showing these current events. It's not to pick on people. I'm showing to show you how relevant this conversation is, right? This is not like to say, oh, I'm really trying to pick on Chapman University. I mean, I could use, you know, a hundred other universities that do stuff like this. It's very common now um, at many universities. I just happen to see this one. There are numerous others. I'm not trying to single everybody out. I'm showing you this to show you how relevant our conversation is that your kids, grandkids, whoever, this is the world they're entering. They go to college, they might go to a college that does stuff like this. So how do you respond? How do you stay faithful and compassionate at the same time? That's our challenge. Okay, so if you haven't seen this, again, I can show you more of these things, but the idea that this goes back not only to graduation, but also to things like gendering kids and that, and, I, and I'm, it's, it's pretty interesting. And it, it's, I'll show you this lady again. If I have time at the end, maybe when I close everything out and I'm not recording, it'll be easier. Um, but the lady that basically says that a person who takes off, who's messing with their onesie at one is saying that they're inherently transgender. They're showing you that they're trans. Or if they're, when they're just learning to talk, when they say I boy or I girl or whatever, that's them gendering themselves and you have to just agree with their expression. So does she have a degree of trans stupid? She's got her, she's, she's, she's got her, she, I don't know if she's psychology or whatever, but it's, she's at a, interestingly, she's at a Dominican hospital, a Catholic hospital giving this talk. If, there's a whole lot of ironies in it, but if I get, get a chance, at the end, I'll show you this because it'll make sense after watching Freud. Does that, do you, or if you're with me on that. So before I start Freud, any comments, questions on this? 
I got you going, which is good. This is what I wanted to do. I want to start the conversation so you understand how relevant this actually is um, when we get to Freud, because the transgender movement is the logical kind of final step that goes back to all of the stuff we've been talking about. It's kind of the last final step in this idea of expressive individualism, the idea that there's an imminent frame that I'm not accountable to anybody but myself, right? And that inner sense of well-being, psychological happiness is the true measure of things. So how do you get that psychological happiness? In Freud, it's through gender sex expression. That's how we are fundamentally happy. So it's a turn to the inward to find happiness, as opposed to it being external, either transcendent from God or your polis, your culture. It's instead all about you. Okay, so I want to show you, and you, uh, the paper came out with Freud, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to pause a bunch of times on this one. Okay, so if you have the Freud paper, I'm going to close out of this just so it doesn't slow me down. There we go. And then we'll get uh, Truman up here. <laughs> All right, so you all have your paper, you have this, I'll, again, I will pause, because so there's going to be so much of this that you're going to resonate or recognize, I'm sure. There we go. Well, we've covered quite a bit of ground in the first five lectures of this series, and we now come to a point where I want to pull a few things together and, and really start moving us into uh, the world context in which we currently find ourselves. One of the major strands of what I've been trying to say over the previous five lectures is that human beings have come to understand their identity in increasingly psychological categories over the years. Now, Marx is a little different. Marx, of course, emphasizes the, the importance of economic structure, economic material factors, and the way we think. But the other thinkers, Rousseau, the Romantics, Nietzsche, Oscar Wilde, really tend to focus on the, the inner will of the human being, our inner psychological life as absolutely determinative of who we are. And we see that perhaps in its most extreme form in, in Nietzsche theoretically and in Wilde practically. But there's another step in the story we need to tell in order to understand the kind of culture and politics we live in at the moment. Yes, I would want to say we live in a world where the self is, is highly psychologized, but also the self is highly sexualized now. Sexual desire has come to perform a role within society, to come to perform a role in personal identity that is pretty much unprecedented in history. The sexualizing of psychology, the sexualizing of the self, that's the next big stage in our story. And in order to understand this, we need to know something about uh, the great-grandfather of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, brought up in a, a fairly secular Jewish a Viennese household, was most famous as the founder of psychoanalysis. His dates, 1856 to 1939. Like Marx, he died uh, an exile in London. Uh, of course, the reason for uh, Freud's exile was much more to do with the rise of Nazism and violent anti-Semitism on the continent. Marx was a political exile because of his revolutionary activities. Now today it's certainly true that Freud's psychoanalytic theories, his theory of the subconscious, his idea of the Oedipus complex, etc., 
These things are pretty much discredited if they're taught in schools of psychology at all, they're museum pieces or they're part of the grand historical narrative that bring us to today. They're not particularly living as ideas and important concepts. But culturally, culturally his legacy lives on in two important respects. Culturally, he's really the founder of the idea that sex and sexual desire is foundational to human happiness and therefore to human identity. You think about uh, who am I? You ask yourself, who am I? Uh, what am I doing here? Probably the kind of answer you're going to give to that question to some extent is going to involve what makes you happy. Well, Freud's the man who really pinpoints sex as that which makes people happy. So that's the first thing. Uh, first thing that Freud's uh, legacy uh, means today, we think of sex as identity rather than activity. And secondly, he bequeaths us a theory of culture which places sexual codes at ve the very heart of what it means to be civilized. In a sense, Freud would say, if you want to know uh, what makes a culture tick, if you want to go to the very heart of what a culture considers valuable, you should look at the codes of sexual behavior embodied in that society. That will take you to the essence of that particular culture. Another thing to notice about Freud, of course, is that he does this using the most compelling and persuasive of modern idioms, the language of science. One of the things, the advantages, if you like, that Freud has over, say, a Rousseau or a Nietzsche or a Wilde is Freud talks in the language of science. And really, since the early 19th century, science has become a very persuasive form of rhetoric for grabbing the attention. Think of the recent COVID crisis and how much the scientists, rather than, say, the politicians or the philosophers, have tended to dominate and control public policy. Why? It's because scientists and the scientific idiom grip our imaginations. They have an intrinsic authority. Even though many of us don't understand their arguments, when something is expressed in the scientific idiom, we tend to grant it an authority and a status. And that's the genius of Freud. Freud puts across ideas that quite often are very fanciful and if you pick below the surface are not particularly scientific in a traditional sense. But because he uses the language, the rhetoric, the jargon of science, his arguments carry huge weight with us. If you think for a moment about the implications of that legacy of Freud that I talked about, uh, it's the intuitive position today, isn't it, that we think of identity in terms of sexual desire. Think of the labels that are routinely used in our politics, straight, gay, lesbians, etc. Those labels only make sense in a world where sexual desire is identity. That's the legacy of Freud. And when you think about the way sexual codes have been transformed, changed, in some cases abolished over the last 50 years, it takes you to the heart of what's going on in society, to the heart of what's going on in our culture. That which society finds sexually unacceptable tells you an awful lot about what that society thinks of itself and what it values. The other thing about Freud is, as part of his, his legacy of, of sexual identity, is that he projects sexuality back into childhood. Freud was one of those who argued that human beings are always sexual, even infants. Think of the implications of that. If sex is identity and infants are sexual, 
that has immediate implications for things like education. Sex education in that kind of context will become a hot-button political issue. Think of the modern world. Most, some of the most contentious debates about education, even at elementary school level, focus on issues of sexuality among children. Think about how those things play out in terms of parental rights versus child's rights. Think of how that shapes... So I'm going to stop right here. So just to kind of make sure we're on the same page on your blanks here. So I have the self at the beginning. The self is now highly sexualized, okay? And I think you'd all agree with that. That's pretty obvious. Self-evident if you look at culture. Most of Freud's theories are now discredited, at least from a psychological or scientific standpoint. Most people are not Freudians anymore. Um, you know, if you ever watched the show Frasier, Frasier Crane is a Freudian, and that's, he's actually kind of a walking anachronism because most, most people, even by his point, were not. He's a, they're, they, they're kind of making fun of them because they're always aloof or always kind of disconnected. That's part of their chick. But Frasier is a Freudian, and his brother Niles is a Jungian. Carl Jung, they're both kind of discredited, if that makes sense. And so that's kind of part of the joke. It's kind of an in-joke for people in the, in the show Frasier. Um, but he does, however, live on, and this is why it's so popular, and he is a pop psychologist. He's on the radio, right? And that's that they still live culturally. Freud still lives on culturally. His, his idea of this, the psychoanalytical sexual self is still very, very much with us in the culture. And so he has two main legacies. Sex is foundational to human happiness. If you're not being able to express yourself, you're inherently unhappy. So all those monks and nuns from the Middle Ages who thought they were, you know, living the good life, nope, they were repressed. Because the only way to be truly happy is to have sexual pleasure and sexual experience, according to Freud. Okay, it's the maximum way to be happy, okay? The theory of culture where sexual codes are at the very heart of civilization. You want to know what is, how what a society values? Look at their sexual ethics and look at their codes, what they forbid and what they don't forbid. That's how you know what society is. Okay, and so now you're going to see where there's political ramifications. You can kind of hear it already a little bit, I think, if you're reading between the lines, where some people are going to take off and run with this. And Freud does this using the language of science. This is something you may have witnessed, many of you, especially those of you who have, um, who have lived, a few lived a few decades. Have you noticed that when you read a science, I mean, not a science book, a history book, that it's no longer narrative? Have you ever noticed that? Like, it used to be when you read a history book. So I have some old history books at home. Like from that my dad found, and they were old even when my dad was in school, sort of thing, right? So like 1940s, 50s publishing day. My son has them and he loves them because they're stories. So when you read about the ancient exploration of the Americas, it's a, I think he has like a fifth or sixth grade elementary textbook from the 1950s or something like that. You it's it's not let's discuss all these different little like details and footnotes. It's here's the story of Cortez, and it's just a story. Right? Now it's history, but it's written in narrative form. Now what you have to do is say, well, we know that Cortez, uh, his company was made up of 80% men, 20% Native American. We know that, and I'm making up numbers right now. It's going to give you exact specifics. We know that the status of women at this time was X. We know the status of this at this time was this. We know that the socio-political environment of the, of the Aztecs at this time was this. We know that based on cultural geography, and it's like, it's accurate, but it reads, it's couched in the language of science. You're going to have a bunch of parenthetical notation or footnotes. And that's now how you do history, where 50 years ago, you wrote stories. This is why people hate taking history class now, because they read these books, and you're like, there's no story. This is just, it's just a bunch of facts, or it's uh, an analytical way of criticizing the past or problematizing the past. This shows that Cortez was part of the patriarchal heteronormative uh, period of his time, and therefore, you see, how, you see how history is written now? But it's written with scientific language. You see how scientific that sounds, as opposed to 
Cortez had all these groups and on the night of tears, they retreated across the bridge. You see how that's, you see how that's sounding like a story, right? People like stories. Well, you can't do that anymore because then they might lionize Cortez or they might admire him or they might, you can't have that. Instead, everything has to be analytical and problematize and you know what I mean? And serving it, so that, that's, and that's not just in history. You see the thing I told you about there, you have the sociology, how do the groups work together, anthropology, right? Study of humanity and cultures, okay? Linguistics, language. It's not enough to just study language. You have to learn how language is used to serve oppression. Because words themselves can be violence. Which is why we were having that conversation before, by the way, about pronouns. See what I mean? Because if you misgender or dead name or whatever somebody, that speech, speech has power. And so you don't just study linguistics for the sake of linguistics and just try to learn other languages or maybe learn language families. How are German and English related? You know, stuff like that. Instead, you have to learn how do German and English reflect the patriarchal oppressive society? How can we decolonize English and German? See the language? That sort of stuff, again, it starts back here. It starts back with Freud because this narrative of everything is sexualized in gender identity. And since everything is sexualized and given to gender identity, even language itself or history itself must be read through those lenses. Okay, and so you have to put those glasses on in order to properly interpret. And you have to use scientific text sounding language because remember when we did the fact value dichotomy, facts are things like math and science, but values are things like morals or religion. And so in order for it to be factual, it might, like he said with Freud, once you read behind the lines a little bit, you're like, well, that's pretty fanciful. That's, but he writes it with scientific sounding jargon. And so you can come up with bizarre theories about things, but as long as you couch it in the language of science or social science, which is a soft science, it's therefore okay. So you can say weird things like misgendering fat bodies and put it in an academic journal and get published because it sounds scientific. Okay, Freud is the person that kind of justifies that sort of language. I can show you, it's, it'll, it'll blow your mind. Some of the stuff that comes out, some of these academic journals, people are tenured professors publishing stuff. And you look at it, you're like, it sounds like gobbledygook because it sounds scientific, it's very technical verbiage. But when you translate it, you're like, really? That's a paper? But you have to translate it because when you couch it in scientific language, most lay people say, oh, they're a professor. So they, they must know what they're talking about. That, that's sort of a way of kind of showing this sort of analysis Freud does that with sexualization of things, okay? Um, you see that sexual desire now equals identity. That's a huge shift. That is unlike anything really in human history. Sex has gone from something that you do to something that you are. I can't emphasize that enough. And this is one of those where how do you unbake this noodle, right? I mean, this is one of, it's really difficult. And this is it's speaking as somebody who grew up in this culture, right? And all of you did. To undo that way of thinking is almost impossible for us. We have to work at undoing this idea because we are so programmed in the media and in the culture and in our and in our uh, daily lives. With sometimes sometimes people call the social or cultural imaginary. We just assume this as people. This idea that your identity is your sexual desire. You don't say I am a person who practices this. You are what you practice. You aren't just somebody who engages in heterosexual behavior, you are heterosexual. See, that's works. You don't engage in same-sex behavior. You are homosexual. See, that's a huge, huge shift. And it's very difficult for us to unlearn that. And that's, and Freud is one of the primary people, and there's people that come after him as well, that does this, this shift from equating sexual practice to being your identity, who you are as a person, where it becomes your entire subculture. It's not just enough to, so now we have 
gay movies. We have gay clothing, gay music, gay literature. You see what I'm saying? It's your identity. It's your entire cultural identity. It's tied up into your practices or your desires or your longings. That's a shift. That is never, same-sex behavior has been around since the fall. That's not new. What's new in the last 100 years is equating it to who you are. That's a unique thing of the modern, the modern self. Okay. All right. I'll let him go. And then, of course, you heard that last one. You saw that Freud projects sexuality back into childhood, even as early as infants. Did you hear that? I don't want to uh, do this in class, especially since I'm in recording. I'll just tell you to do research as an adult. Research the Kinsey experiments. And you'll see Freud's ideas at work. Okay. If he did some of that stuff, that Alfred Kinsey, they, they try to lionize him in Hollywood. There's a Liam Neeson movie called Kinsey where he's just a misunderstood, you know, progressive scientist. If you read the experiments that Kinsey did, he would be arrested for child abuse. He would be. But he couched it in the language of science and Freudian analysis. Do you get what I'm saying? And so Freud enables this sort of way of thinking about things. So again, I can't, I can't talk about those on camera. But if you look at the, just look up Alfred Kinsey and what he did, what his experiments were. Kinsey, K-I-N-S-E-Y, K-I-N-S-E-Y, just look him up. Spell it But the stuff that he was, and the stuff that he was advocating for, and some of the stuff that he was, yeah, it's pretty, but it's just, remember, there's nobody you're accountable to. It's an imminent frame, right? It's all about the self. If it's all about the self, he has, he, I mean, there's no God for him to be accountable to, so why not do those things? After all, we'll just hire animals anyways. Okay. So, I mean, I mean, ideas have consequences. But the Kinsey experiments are only possible in the world created by Freud. Okay, only possible through this idea. Okay, so if you so if Kinsey is the logical extension of Freud, we're going to have a more political extension next week on how it's weaponized. It's weaponized in our politics. All right, I want to show you this. This is going to show you this shift. He's going to talk about some thinkers on where human happiness comes from. Okay, here we go. How that shapes the state's notion of its own responsibility towards children, etc. So when Freud turns sex from behavior into identity, he accomplishes a revolution that has transformed all of our lives. We simply can't ignore, if you like, the contribution, the legacy of Freud on this point. And what I want to do in the remaining minutes of this lecture is expound just a few of his ideas to show how this sort of fits together in his thinking. First thing I want to look at is Freud and happiness. Happiness, of course, as the purpose of life, is pretty basic for most of us. You know, when we ask the question, does life have meaning, what's life about, we could probably translate that as, what is it that's going to make me feel happy and satisfied? Aristotle, the great, uh, great Greek philosopher, thought the happy life was the virtuous life, a life lived, cultivating, and according to virtues that enabled one to interact within the polis, within wider society, in a good and wholesome way. Christianity, of course, thinks that happiness is to be found only ultimately in heaven, but here on earth is to be found uh, through uh, worshipping uh, and acting in obedience to, to God. With the Enlightenment, 17th and 18th century, notions of happiness start to shift a little. Happiness became increasingly identified with pleasure and unhappiness with pain. And Freud, in many ways, is the culmination of that enlightenment trajectory of happiness, pleasure, unhappiness, pain. And Freud, this will come as no surprise to you, I'm sure, when he asked the question, what makes us happy? 
answers that it is sexual activity that does so. I have a couple of quotations here I'm going to read from his great work, Civilization and Its Discontents. What do people demand of this life and wish to achieve in it? The answer to this can hardly be in doubt. They strive after happiness. They want to become happy and to remain so. This endeavour has two sides, a positive and a negative aim. It aims on the one hand at an absence of pain and unpleasure, and on the other at the experiencing of strong feelings of pleasure. End quote. So far, so good. In many ways, uh, Freud is not saying anything there that countless people before him, standing in the, uh, under the, uh, in the shadow of the Enlightenment, might well have said. But he goes on to give it a distinctively Freud twist. What does this mean? What does this happiness mean? I quote again from Christian, uh, Civilization, Its Discontents. Man's discovery that sexual, that is genital love, afforded him the strongest experiences of satisfaction and in fact provided him with the prototype of all happiness must have suggested to him that he could, should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations and that he should make genital erotism the central point of his life. Notice what Freud, end quote, notice what Freud is saying there. He's saying the erotic, sexual desire and sexual satisfaction become central to human life. Basically foundational to who we are, how we think, and how we act. That's quite a contrast to early history where sex was... Uh, probably okay, so he's going to explain this. I want to, if you didn't catch this, so for Aristotle... The happy life was the virtuous life, right? And I've told you this before, that for the ancient Greeks, true freedom came from actually repressing your baser urges so you had self-mastery, right? So you could control your, your baser instincts. You actually had a happier life because now you had control of yourself. You see the idea? So now you can actually direct all those desires and direct, you're in charge as opposed to just giving in all the time, right? So the virtuous life, cultivating virtue, wisdom, knowledge, temperance, self-control, some of them are actually very compatible with Paul's list in the New Testament, for example, right? Like the fruits of the spirit. The ancient Greeks would have recognized some of those fruits of the spirit. They would have said, oh yeah, self-control, we call that temperance. We agree with that. You see what I mean? So they would have had courage, fortitude, <laughs> strength, both inner strength and outward strength. Those are the sort of classical virtues. You think about Aristotle, you think about the Stoics. They had this idea of an outward project. Notice those virtues. They only work, I mean, they're inner, but they also work in relation to everything else because you're temperate with other people, right? You're temperate. Notice that it was for the sake of the polis. That's the city-state, right, of the time, the Greek city-state, the body politic. It's called the polis. It's where we get the word politics from the Greek word polis, okay? So it's for the polis, the virtuous people. And so that the reason they had a republic back then is they thought that virtuous people would make a better, virtuous, more better republic. Does that make sense? It's just logical. It's going to reflect the, the nature of the people around us. Founding fathers realized that, by the way, also, right? It's only for a moral people or a virtuous people. Just read John Adams or James Madison, read some of the founding fathers. They had the same, they read their Greco-Roman classics. They knew this stuff. And so they said, if you want a republic, if you can keep it, in Franklin's words, you need a virtuous and moral people. That's what, that's how they thought, okay? And so that's very outwardly focused. It's very civic focused. That's the Greek one. Of course, the Christian worldview is not incompatible with that view, but the Christian worldview and what we call the kingdom of the right, the gospel kingdom, Christian worldview is ultimate happiness is found in God, to know him, to be with him, to be in communion with him. The way Augustine will say this is our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Ever heard that quote before from Augustine's Confessions? Wonderful book. If you had to read one work from the church fathers that's accessible, read Augustine's Confessions. 
In fact, I um, when Chris Simmons subbed for me a couple months ago, do you remember when he talked about how Augustine stole pears? And he's just kind of like, I just realized I didn't do it because they tasted good or because I was hungry. I did it for the pleasure of it. Right? The idea of serving the self. He's talking about a sin nature, right? This is the idea here. And so that's from his confessions. And so it's very accessible. But that very famous that he's like, I didn't realize that all this searching and all this longing and all this uh, all this angst, the only reason I was experiencing them is because I was not resting in God. So my heart is restless. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's that's a famous quote from Augustine. And so true happiness then, true ease is found by resting in God. That's the Christian worldview. Okay. And we know this throughout scripture, right? All through scripture, that it's only in God do we actually know our purpose. Only in God do we have our true identity. Only in God over and over. That's the Christian worldview. Okay. And in the kingdom of the left, we would argue the Greek one kind of takes care of the kingdom of the left. What's the goal? What's happiness in the left? A life of virtue. And so that all of our lives around us are better. So the, those two views are kind of put together throughout what I call Western Civ up until the Enlightenment. In the kingdom of the left, we need virtuous people. We need chivalrous knights or we need virtuous kings or whatever it is in the kingdom of the left. And in the kingdom of right, you need to rest in God, right? Your eternal security. When you have both of those things, you have a pretty happy life. Now, you're still going to have tragedies. You're still broken by sin. Bad things are going to happen. Not everybody's going to be living the same way, right? So it's not like it's heaven on earth. But that's the goal, is you have virtue in both places. The virtues of Christ, so that you are saved, and the virtues of the self in the left-hand kingdom, so that everybody around you, love of neighbor, and also you can have a just and stable society there. Does that make sense? Then you get to the enlightenment because of this idea, this dichotomy, that well, the only thing that we can know are factual or scientific things, things like morals and ethics, yeah, some of that's kind of just opinion or cultural convention. Now you're starting to see a turn to the inward, where happiness is now found in how I maximize pleasure. Okay, and minimize pain. For the Greeks, pain might be a good teacher, right? Pain could be a good thing. We actually know from Christ, right? That, uh, or from Paul, where a great Christ says to Paul, Paul uh, Jesus, please take away this thorn in my side. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's the opposite of this plain pleasure thing. That's basically saying that your suffering, Paul, is going to make you better because it shows my strength. You see, that's, that's what God tells Paul. The Enlightenment would have would not like that. They would basically say, if that causes you pain, you should avoid that thing. Okay? It's interesting. Go ahead. There's an interesting thought, though. Um, people who have Hansen's disease or, or uh, leprosy, mm -hmm. they don't have the sense of pain. Consequently, if they burn themselves or cut themselves, they don't know it. Right. And without pain, you won't know that. So actually, pain is a gift. <laughs> yeah, because I would agree. you won't damage yourself further well they would agree with that too but they would say so then if that's the case that is a gift so now the goal is to avoid that at all costs but it's a gift it's a, it is but it's a gift to show you what you don't want okay but does it also say that you, then because god gave this gift to us that we should be angry with but remember imminent frame there is no god oh yeah right that's right see what i'm saying yeah so go, go for it <laughs> in studying this and i've never studied in in college i never studied Freud. right never had any real interest in it but it occurs to me in, in what we're doing here in one of his last statements kind of encapsulated uh, the thought that I had that you look at, at Freud and it, it appears to me that he he is the uh, he is a product self-made perhaps of arrested development. He never got beyond the teenage <laughs> desires of a 16 year old and so he can't see beyond his libido. He can't see anything fulfilling such as a teacher getting a great, a great pleasure out of teaching or the doctor getting great pleasure out of a successful operation or the priest 
who helps somebody to see the light or whatever. His his whole world begins and ends with ju juvenile prurience. If you listen to him, you, I actually agree with you, but actually he would agree with you because you know what he's going to say? You're going to get to this. Is that all that pleasure you get in other ways or like artist, art, the arts or your vocation, it's your sexual libido that's been now re, it's been sublimated into other areas. That energy that you have sexually is now put in other areas. So when you see great works of art that are very beautiful, it's somebody who's taken their sexual desires and directed it into a way that's, you see what he's going to go do with this? Yeah. And so he's going to explain it away by saying that's the <laughs> price we pay for civilization. We're going to get, just wait till they get to the second half. Because it, you're, I agree with you that at its fundamental level, it's like somebody who's just only extinctual. But if man is just a higher animal and we have this imminent frame, his theory is, is that what's the strongest, most, uh, most strongest motivation that humans experience? And he, he argues it's sexual motivations. And so because we're no more than a higher animal and religion's just foolhardy, right? We need to somehow explain human behavior, even when it comes to creating great works of art. Well, that's, and I, I, this, this, this for me, I'm telling you as somebody who teaches history, but also even music history is huge. So if you read a biography, I, I kid you not, you read a biography about a composer like Brahms. Uh, this is 1990s, the book by Jan Swafford, it's a biography on Brahms. It's really great reading. And it's a book that I love and loathe at the exact same time. <laughs> I read it and on one page, I'm like this, it, I'm angry that this guy's going this route. And the next page, I'm like, this is beautiful writing. And somebody who clearly loves his subject. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's the most maddening book that I've ever read is the Swafford biography on Brahms, who's one of my favorites. Because he does a Freudian way of looking at Brahms. What explains this behavior? Well, it was the corruption of his erotic life. Jeez. And if you read, and again, this is just, I'm just talking about because I specialize in music history. If you read great artists, Michelangelo, Bernini, same stuff. If you read great men of history, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they they spend chapters and and entire par and paragraph to paragraph about their sexual experiences or their perhaps repressed sexual desires or how society kept them down or how they're they were taking advantage of others sexually i mean they spend page after page why because of Freud. because he says this is central to our experience in our life so now when you write a biography of somebody you have to write about that thing and your audience is only interested in that thing and so it's like, what's well, so central to human life? And so how could you not write about it? Because that's how we understand their music or how we understand their art or how we understand the literature. How can you not write about those things? Because it's central to, see the presupposition there? It's, you cannot not write about this. Otherwise, you're not doing justice to your subject. Okay. Someone's opinion. Right. Or like, I mean, and I, and I, Swafford's a great example. He writes popular biographies of composers. I'm just using him as an example. And he's from... He's probably in the 60s or 70s. He's in that kind of generation where this was how you wrote biographies. Now, now you have to be political when you write them. Okay, so now, not, 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 you can't just write about their personal predilections. Now you have to say things like, well, this proves that they were beneficial of the patriarchal society of the time. And so now, now you have to add the political aspect to it too. And so you can't just write about their life or write about their music. You have to have, you have to write from this specific worldview and analysis and do analysis in this way. Okay. I kid you not, and I, I don't say this to be lurid. But there is a paper in my, I remember this, I will never forget this. I, I went to Wheaton College, which was a evangelical Christian college right outside of Chicago. My music history professor one time said, you know, we were talking about music history and he was just shaking his head. And he's a Christian, very solid Christian man from a kind of a, he was a, uh, a missionary kid. Um, so very old school music prof, okay? He was just shaking his head one day and he's like, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. Forgive me for saying this, but I just got to say this. I'm just... I just don't feel right right now because I just read a paper on how the second movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is an act of rape. 
he's like, what in the, you know, it's like, he's like, I, and he's like, but he's like, and he's like, the reason I'm disturbed is this is part and parcel of the way this is going. Like, you know, you know, he's seeing this everywhere. This is like 2005 or something when he made this comment. Of course, it's gotten worse. Why? Because of this. Everything is sexualized. And because the music sounds aggressive or it sounds fast or it sounds angry, that's clearly Beethoven's libido coming out. And he's being, you see, see how this works? Okay, and so think about this, and I don't have a whole lot of time around to continue this, obviously. I told you this would take a while. Um, this also impacts things in the church. So and this, is, this is what I want to pivot to. So now when you do like theological studies, we're going to study the Apostle Paul. Well, the Apostle Paul was single. He says, I wish all men were single like I am. Well, the reason he was willing to put up with all that pain is it's kind of like this repressed idea. And it was his way of kind of getting rid of those kind of sexual urges or sexual edges. That's why Paul writes that way. Or he's he's uh, he condemns homosexuality because he's actually he's actually secretly homosexually desiring things, and so this is his he's like self hating. Do you see how this works? So now we're going to look at the Apostle Paul through that lens, or we're going to look at the early church through that lens, or we're going to look at David and Jonathan and say they were secretly gay lovers, or we're going to you see what I mean? Yes. Everything, including the scriptures, have to be viewed through those lenses because it is so central to human existence, including theology. See what I mean? And so this becomes ubiquitous. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. And um, this is somebody who teaches history. Now, I don't obviously don't teach this way, but if you believe in objective truth and you believe in a transcendent source of meaning, this is how hard the challenge really is, is it is really that ubiquitous in the culture, in the academy. And it, it's all subject, theology, history, theology, you see what I'm saying? Music, art, it's everywhere. In fact, he's going to show a picture from Bernini and say, look at the expression of this woman's face from the ecstasy of St. Teresa. It's a, it's a vision she has where an angel stabs her in the heart with an arrow. It's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor. Look at her face. Doesn't that look sexualized? Doesn't that show that religion is a way to supplement the sexual urge? That's what he's going to do. And, but that's right. I mean, that's, and so if, now again, his psychological theories are discredited. I want to emphasize that. But his influence in terms of that you look at humanity and you look at human experience through those lenses we live in that world. Now it's going to be politicized. And now that my children are in, I have to end. You see why? All right. So we'll continue next week. We'll close with a blessing. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. We'll continue this discussion. You'll see why. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.